you on the panel, RNZ National. Wonderful to have your company. I'm Wallace Chapman, Verity Johnson and Peter Dunn with me this afternoon. Now a sweeping review into the country's electoral system is recommending major changes to our electoral system that soon. But first, the Prime Minister has stood Michael Wood down as Transport Minister while any remaining issues around his conflicts are resolved. Wood apologised for failing to properly declare his shares in Auckland Airport as the Prime Minister seeks more details on the controversy. Wood purchased the shares worth about 13 grand when he was a teenager in the 1990s and declared the shares to the Cabinet Office when he became a minister in 2020. However, he failed to declare them in the public register of MPs, assets and other interests until last year. Now there's a, a post cab uh, at the moment Prime Minister Chris Hipkins is speaking now. If there's any other news to hand, we'll give it to you straight away. But with us now is Dr Bryce Edwards, lecturer in politics at Victoria University. Dr Edwards, kia ora. Kia ora, was. So what of this, uh, Bryce? Uh, uh, Woods said he's going to take his medicine and sell his shares. Um, what do you make of this? Oh, look, the, the Prime Minister has done the right thing in standing down the Minister uh, some people were saying, well, this is just a few shares, what does it matter? But really, the problem isn't that he owned the shares, the problem is he failed to declare them. And under our system, both in Parliament and Cabinet, we rely on the politicians to actually be upfront about uh, any conflicts of interest or potential conflicts of interest. It looks like you know, these were actually hidden. So even when the Minister um, became aware that he hadn't done his uh, proper declaration, he still didn't disclose them by going back and fixing them in the past. So our system is actually it's quite lenient. It you know, allows for politicians to make mistakes. But when they make the mistakes, the politicians do have to retrospectively fix up for previous years. In this case, Michael Wood hasn't done that. So I think there really is some questions for him to answer. OK, I'm sure our um, panel will want to jump on the question. Peter Dunn, you first. No, I, I agree with Bryce, but I think uh, just one question I put to you, Bryce. Um, there's a bit of a pattern here. You know, Michael Wood f- didn't declare because he overlooked doing so. Jan Tinney, he didn't correct something in Parliament because she overlooked doing so. This sort of overlooked thing seems to be becoming quite a common refrain for what are comparatively minor offences. I just wonder whether it's a bit of a device to get over the fact that they either forgot to do it, didn't do it deliberately, or some other, other reason. Oh, look, uh, it does seem like it's more than a coincidence that we're having these lapses in ethical standards. And sometimes you just get that with uh, governments, as you know, Peter, you know, that have been around for a while. They get lazy, they get complacent. I'm not sure if that falls into this category or not. But certainly we've got a government, you know, that's you know, been, I don't know, focused on a lot of other things. Mm. And so it has taken... Uh, uh, haven't really been focused on some of those basic things like the integrity of their own yeah, relationships, I think. Yeah. Verity. Um, kia ora, Bryce. I'm interested, you said that we have a lenient system. I'm actually kind of curious, what are you actually allowed to have as an MP if you've got, you know, like Michael Wood was the Minister for Auckland and also Transport. What can you actually have in those situations by ways of shares? Do we have restrictions on that? Good question. Uh, I'm not really aware of any prohibitions on ownership of anything. Mm. 
I guess what I meant by lenient, um, but you're right in that way you characterise that, lenient in the way that the system of disclosure operates, that mm. um, it allows for politicians to make mistakes because we're all human and sometimes we overlook things and uh, it seems that Michael Wood has done this. But my point is that when you realise you've made a mistake, you do have to fess up, you have to apologise and you have mm. to get the rules corrected mm including retrospectively. In this case, Michael Wood hasn't done this. He started to uh, to you know, fill out the forms correctly once he did realise it, but not going back in time. And that's a pretty basic part of the parliamentary and uh, cabinet procedure that he failed to do. It does make it look like he was trying to, uh, I guess, pull the wall over the public's eyes on this. All right, now we'll have a final thought on this, Peter. I was just going to say in response to Verity, I don't think there's any restriction on what ministers can um, have by way of personal interest, provided they are declared, and that's the right. case. They need to be declared, yeah. and then if there's a conflict, then obviously that can be assessed at the time as to whether that person's suitable for that role because of that conflict. But if you don't declare them, that's when you get into trouble. Um, yeah, gotcha. Stay there, Bryce. I want to bring up the other issue as well. And by the way, we'll have, if anything happens, uh, we will bring the latest uh, to you straight away on the panel uh, on um, uh, Michael Wood um, being stood down as Transport Minister. But uh, the other issue being a sweeping review into the country's electoral system. So what have we got here? Lowering the party vote threshold from 5 to 3.5% and, and abolishing the Kotar rule voting age to be lowered to 16, a public referendum on a longer parliamentary term going to four years. Uh, listeners, what do you make of that? Four-year term. Text me, 2101. Bad idea, great idea. And restricting political donations to registered voters rather than organisations and capping them at $30,000 to each party and its candidates per electoral cycle while reducing the amount that can anonymously uh, be donated. So to this quite wide-ranging rise, if you could pick one to enact right away, what might it be, if any of them? I think one of the biggest problems in our uh, democracy at the moment, our electoral system, is that threshold, that MMP threshold of 5%. And so the recommendation to lower it to 3.5, I think, would make a significant difference. It would allow minor parties to start, uh, I don't know, growing and getting into Parliament. And that would be uh, give people more choice, basically. So at the moment, we've just got a bit of an incumbency racket where the parties that are already there managed to you know, block new parties from, from getting into Parliament. So Making... 2.5% would be good, if, if not lower. Uh, really? What, uh, a suggestion, what, 3 or oh, 2.5? I, I, I would abolish it and make it effectively 1%. I, I don't see any democratic reason not to allow a political party into Parliament that gets 1% of the vote. Um, I think that would be actually good for our democracy, good for Parliament, good for governance. Interesting thoughts there, Peter Dunn, abolishing it or even make it 1%? Well, I certainly think that the 3.5% is an improvement on the 5 but I would also keep the one-seat rule um, simply because of the yeah. point Bryce makes. The whole thing here should be about making it easier for political views to be represented, and whether it be winning an electorate seat or whether it be crossing a particular threshold, whether it's 3.5 or whatever, it should be easier for parties rather than be made more difficult because all that does is entrench power in the hands of the older parties. 
Would you guys be up for that if there was a party that emerged that was largely based on like um, conspiracy theories or misinformation or like they, you saw a fringe party come through that was blatantly down a rabbit hole? Would you still be up for the you know abolishing the three point five percent? I think in an open society, you've got to take that risk and hope that the judgment of voters means that they don't get there. It's a big call. It's a very big call, mm. Dr. Edwards. Yeah, look, I would entirely agree with that. Um, that's democracy. And uh, I think democracy should be able to handle fringe elements uh, being in Parliament. And quite frankly, I think there are a lot of MPs and so forth in Parliament at the moment that are of questionable <laughs> uh, logic themselves. So I'm not sure having a 5% threshold is keeping the nut again. I'm, I'm just wondering, though, if it's the sort of democracy we want. Well, especially if it's not based on fact. I mean, I, uh, I mean, I understand if you're, I understand like the principle of democratic party, which is based upon like fact and science. And what I would be like interested in is if you would apply the principles of democracy to let people who are blatantly dealing in misinformation and lies, is that the same principle? You would just still let them have that ability to have that platform, even if they weren't actively telling the truth. Well, it's always a, a difficult question about who gets to decide. Know who's a valid political voice, and you know who's a valid politician, and I, I'm just a bit weary of the state, you know, deciding. Okay, uh, Brian Tamaki isn't, or he is. Uh, I mean, I might have my own view on that, and which means I might not vote for him. But just because, um, yeah, he seemed to have be fringe or be involved in disinformation, I don't think that's good enough reason for not allowing his supporters to, you know get him represented or any other part. Okay, all right, so lowering, uh, and there are other countries that do that, don't they? There are other countries around the world that have a uh, very, very, very low threshold. In terms of uh, what we're seeing here by, now I know there was a, we've had two referendums previously, I think one of the 90s, 1991 and the 60s, about whether or not we should uh, change the change the term to four years. Overwhelmingly, yes, to a four-year term. What of that, uh, Bryce Edwards? Well, yeah, it does seem that we've had the referendums and, yes, about 69% in both those referendums voted no to extending it to four years. Right. There have been a, quite a few polls in recent years to show that that is changing. And oh. it appears that uh, the idea of a four-year term is now maybe might even have majority support. And so I think people are getting sick of elections and they're thinking that maybe governments uh, need more time to deal with those issues of climate change, inequality, housing crisis, etc. But if you did have uh, less elections, you really are having less democracy and less constraints on those in power. And certainly the New Zealand political system does give a lot of power to governments. So I think we should be very careful before we you know, actually take off those checks and balances and allow the politicians yeah, a, a bit less scrutiny. Peter? Well, I'm one of the few, I think, around who voted for a four-year term back in 1990 in the referendum. But I'm reminded of what the, the late former Labour politician Sir Arnold Nordmeyer once said, that three years is too short for a good government and too long for a bad one. And I think there's a, there's a bit of truth in that, even if I disagree with the three-year thing. I think that there's got to be a balance in there between, you know, how, how can we keep these people in power because they're doing a good job, and how can we get rid of them because they're lousy? 
And do you, do you think that it, um, I mean, because like, I personally would probably be in favour of four years because I feel as though all of the great policies that, like, the first iteration of this Labour government wanted to get through, it just kind of ran out of steam by the time it came to be re-elected. And obviously there was lots of other stuff happening. But if you want systemic change, I feel like three years to tackle something as massive as, like, a Auckland's housing crisis is probably a little bit ambitious for three years. And I kind of got the impression that, you know, if you had maybe four, you could actually get some of these massive changes done instead of trying to find new mm. sweeteners to tempt people back in every three years. I think what Verity is saying is it's quite a, a commonly held uh, feeling at the moment. Like, there's this concern that governments aren't really doing enough, yeah. whether it's this current government or even the last national government, that they, they tend to just be very sort of bland and not actually transform, you know, in some of these big issues that really affect people's lives. But personally, I'm just not sure that there's any evidence that giving politicians longer in power will actually change those things. I think we have seen governments from time to time that have been very radical in reforming, and they've done it in three years. And I'm not sure one year will right. be different. What it might do, uh, will be, I think you're right, Bryce, but I think what it might allow the extra year is just a bit more time to better sequence things. Because at the moment, with a three-year term, you get six months learning the job, you mm. get two and a half year, or two years doing the right. job, and then six months battening down for the election. If you had a three-year block in the middle with the two six months either side, you might just get better policy, but okay. you, won't, you won't get radical policy. We'll have to um, leave it uh, at there at this stage, Bryce, but kia ora, thank you very much for your time. Do appreciate it. Thanks, guys. That's Dr. Bryce Edwards from uh, Victoria University from Politics there. Uh, and, uh, yeah, look, the... Um, uh, <laughs> The feedback we're getting here on the panel is that the vast majority of you want a four-year term. Do you or not? Text me 2101. We've had two referendums. They've said no, but as uh, Bryce Edwards said, their sentiment is possibly changing. 21 past four, this caught my eye. There is a new issue coming to our shores. A boycott of anything vaguely pride-related. Uh, schools have received emails from parents about Schools Pride Week, an initiative by Inside Out Kuaro, stating they'll keep their children home. The event, which is voluntary, encourages schools to celebrate pride with activities like shared lunches or a non-uniform day. It stems from mainly the US, a phenomenon called bud lighting, choosing a company, branding it woke and targeting it with consumer boycotts to drive down sales. It has become an issue at schools there. A protest over a Pride Month assembly at a Los Angeles school turned violent. T-shirts emblazoned, leave our kids alone. With us is Tabby Beasley, Managing Director of Inside Out Kowaro, a charity supporting Rainbow Youth School and Workplaces. Tabby, Kura, great to have you here. Oh, kia ora, thanks for having me. At first glance, I thought it must be quite bizarre to see this development considering just how far we've come in the last 15 to 20 years and all of a sudden this. Absolutely, it really does feel like this kind of import of ideas, you know, a lot of it coming from the US and the UK and the Aotearoa that, you know, we know and we've come accustomed to, um, you know, isn't a place that generally has or, or supports these views and I think that is important for people to remember that um, even in these times where this hate is increasing it's still a minority um, of our kind of country's population that holds those 
opposing views and there's yeah there's so much um, support out there still yeah it's good to remind that I could I could imagine it would be a tiny minority but still I mean at its heart tabby what is the, is this is this anti-gay is it anti-freedom of personal choice to be who you want to be or is it a bit deeper it's mm, a good question I think a lot of it right now is anti-trans sentiment so a lot of yeah opposition to anti-trans um, or to transgender people just existing, similar to what we saw at the time of kind of homosexual law reform towards gay people. It does go broader than that. I guess there's a lot of disinformation um, and kind of, um, yeah, just kind of spreading false ideas about what, you know, what is happening in schools and, and that, you know, um, people from the queer community have this agenda and are trying to convert other people and, you know, all of this kind of nonsense that we just know isn't true. Verity. Uh, Tabby, um, I've been sort of following this a little bit with uh, like the drag queen story time hour, uh, you know, and how they've been boycotted and protested and the same kind of vibe. Um, and what I'm curious about is like when you read a lot of the reports from this, it says that the protesters are referencing things like um, like pedophilia rings and like large scale conspiracies. And it's starting to sound very like online conspiracy theory um, associated, like the language that's creeping in is very much from the same elements of online extremism so like i'm interested what extent do you think that disinformation is fueling this recent uptake in anti-pride and anti-gay kind of protesting and is that something which has got worse over the lockdown when we got access to more information more social media yeah you've really hit the nail on the head there i think it's it's definitely um got worse and we're seeing that yeah i guess that groups that became vulnerable during um covid to disinformation has now jumped on this kind of um, bandwagon for want of a better word and a lot of it is around this dis- disinformation we're receiving you know regular um, comments on our social media emails and things um, telling us that we're grooming children and these horrific um, claims and ideas when we're just you know trying to make sure that schools are safe stop bullying um, you know increase the mental well-being of a really vulnerable population of young people um, so yeah there's a lot of false information claims that you know we're teaching the curriculum and all these things that just aren't true and I think people are really yeah vulnerable and um, just believing what they see without necessarily going to the source right. and kind of digging deeper. Peter Dunn you'd have an interesting perspective on this because I think you came into a parliament around 1984 where uh, you know, it's like going back to history isn't it it was a hugely divisive issue around the homosexual law reform can you recall those times? I, I can indeed and, and some of the, the vitriol and the and the the sort of the muck, literally and and sort of metaphorical, that was thrown at those who were supporters of that legislation, uh, was just just appalling. And I can you know the rallies, the 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 sort of the, the, they all began by singing the national anthem, which I just thought, thought was sort of rank hypocrisy um, to to sort of pr- protest against that legislation. Uh, so yeah, I don't like it. I don't like the, the appearance of this sort of thing again because I think it just smacks of intolerance and ignorance and bigotry of, of the most extreme level and uh, we've got to live up and be better than that. Well, you wouldn't believe some of the feedback I'm getting. Here's one. Uh, Wallace, the anti-gay contingent is very well organised. My daughter, a teacher at a boys' high school, gets regular emails from an organisation demanding to know the school's stance on those issues and also wanting a list of names of boys at that school who are not heterosexual. God, this is just... This is mind-boggling mm. and ghastly, says Mary. So uh, needless to say, Tabby, as you say, 
absolute minority still something to keep an eye out on? Tabby. Yeah, and I mean, great to hear those messages of support kind of coming through. And we know that, you know, the majority of New Zealanders are behind us, you know, um, gay, trans, bisexual, non-binary people. We're, you know, in all families, in all schools, workplaces, kind of, you know, everyone will know somebody. And it's, yeah, thinking as well, I think, about the impact this does have on the people in your life. And right now, especially, yeah, these last couple of months since the visit from Posey Parker, it's been a really challenging time for our Rainbow Fano. So, yeah, I would really encourage people to kind of do those little things and, and show their support um, because yeah, this isn't the kind of the country that, you know, the values that we stand for and we need to, um, yeah, really show that support. Good to have you on the final thought, yeah. Peter. Look, I'm of a generation where we didn't buy Niederberg wine from South Africa and we didn't support the South British Insurance Company because of apartheid in South Africa. They were noble protest using consumer boycotts. And I just find it really repulsive that that tactic is now being employed in such a vile way for a cause that's the complete antithesis of promoting the freedom and opportunity of people that we were about all those years ago. Tabby? Kia ora. Great to have you on. There's Tabby Beasley there, Managing Director of Inside Out Kowaru there, uh, that uh, share being a boycott of anything vaguely pride-related. Uh, uh, that on the panel, 28 past four. Just a, a, a word on this. Actually, no, I won't, um, uh, I, I won't uh, do that right now. I was going to be talking about the uh, Dame Jacinda Ardern, given the highest honour, but we've had so much feedback about tomato sauce just to... Uh, <laughs> See, my condiment obsession just, has its benefits. Just, just, you know, just just to sort of, um, uh, you know, go to a completely different topic. Uh, Chris says, I bought a hot dog and chips at the Warriors game on the weekend. I didn't have to pay extra at all. The hot dog was excellent. The chips were perfect. The tomato sauce, that was free. Um, someone says, everything has a cost. The cafe has been absorbing all Verity's extra costs in the past. <laughs> they can't do any more, Verity. We need to learn that we have to pay for what we want. And that's an absolute fair point. <laughs> and yet there are certain things which when you work in hospital, you provide as part of the experience. Salt and pepper, cups mm. for your water. There Just are pay napkins. for it. Just pay for it. <laughs> but there's all of these experiences that like the, the cafe as part of a hospitality establishment, there's basic things you offer. You know, like, yeah, I could pay for my own napkins, but I get given a free napkin because mm. I'm eating there. Uh, no, it is not okay to charge extra. My husband and I were at a pub in Fitiyanga and was charged $2.50 for a tiny portion of mayonnaise. And the service, really? And the service was poor too. <laughs> Man. If it's a Michelin star restaurant, I can understand it a bit if they charge you uh, for some tomato sauce. So, yeah, big response there. And look, the, Peter's, Peter's one has had response to his one. I completely agree about councils. This is Peter Dunn's I've been thinking. Here in South Taranaki, we have a problem with irresponsible and unregistered dog owners. The fees go up annually, but in the five years I've been here, nothing's changed. Our two councillors don't give a damn. This person's opinion. And don't get me started on the state of our roads. Yep, increase in rates with no improvement in services. That's the way, isn't it? Here on the panel, uh, NZ National, we have Peter Dunn today and Verity Johnson. It is time for headlines with Marama Tipone.